Hi, and welcome to Classical Stuff You Should Know. This is a podcast about classical things. Old books, old junk, old stuff, old art. Old, put on by old guys. <laughs> Wait, what? And What'd you say? <laughs> my, my name is AJ Hannenberg. I am a teacher here at Veritas Academy in Austin, Texas, and I am joined by my two fellows, Graham Donaldson. Hi. And Thomas Magby. <laughs> oh, hello. Yeah. Were, were you thrown off by? Yes, I was. I'm usually last. Really? Is that how that works? Have you not noticed? I usually intro you first. That's why I swapped it up and did AJ first last. Oh. Anyway, this is interesting. It's my inferiority complex. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> anyway, we uh, the, the subject of the episode today is that if you are not, like, whatever your current vocation, if it's not philosopher, uh-huh. you're doing it wrong. You're That's right. Wrong. Yep. Uh, you're, you're, you are just digging your own grave there, pal. Oh, my gosh. You're doing it wrong, uh, and no one loves you. Yep. And that's, that's what we always say. where we're at. Yep. That's really like the subheading of the podcast. <laughs> You're doing <laughs> it wrong. No one, <laughs> no one loves Try you. Try better. Yeah, do better. No, this, so the, this has been, and I, uh, I think that's been bouncing around in my head, and we've all sort of talked about it and kind of made fun of it when it comes up. And that's like Aristotle has said it, Plato said it, Socrates has said it. I was, I was reading Seneca's On the Shortness of Life this summer. He says it. And it's that sort of phrase that um, the happiness of life or the, the, the happy man is the one who does philosophy. And we've always joked that, like, well, of course, philosophers are going to say that your barber tells you you need a haircut. Right. Like right. Um, whatever you do, everyone. So I've never been satisfied. I mean, I think there's something to that, but I've never really been satisfied that that's the actual answer uh, to why they're saying that. Anyway, so I never really knew what to do with that. And then I was reading, I got just for fun, I got Aesop's Fables. Um, and it, was, it has an introduction by G.K. Chesterton. Mm. And G.K. Chesterton just had this little phrase at the end of the introduction that was a, not a throwaway phrase, but he just had sort of ended the introduction with this phrase that I think helps me understand what Seneca and, and Aristotle and all those guys are saying when they say philosophy is like the good life. So just to start us off, I want to... Was it check yourself before you... Yes, before (laughs) before you wreck yourself. yourself. Yeah, that's actually Aesop. Oh, wow. (laughs) All this time. I had no idea. (laughs) Incredible. Um, So I just want to like go through Seneca's little argument that he does in The Shortness of Life. Uh, That's not the main point of this book, uh, but it's a great little book on The Shortness of Life. Um, is it selections from his works or did he, um, it's on the shortness of life is a letter that he wrote to his buddy, okay. uh, Paul, Paulinus okay. when he was, um, uh, I th- yeah, it's a couple of letters that he, that he wrote while he was exiled okay. from, he worked for, I think he was like an emperor's tutor or the emperor's kid's tutor or something. Mm-hmm. And he was in Rome and then the emperor was powered crazy and did what all emperors do, which is think everyone's trying to stab you. And Seneca got banished for probably reasons that he didn't deserve. Uh, I didn't really. Seneca's not the the point of this podcast. We've started using him to jump off on to talk about sure. this this question. But, but isn't that the right of any emperor? Well, if I've ever become emperor, oh, sure. people get banished. <laughs> oh, banished! Yeah. Just like yes. Cook my soup wrong. Yeah, banished. Out. Gone. Yep. Boom. You're going to Nevada. <laughs> that's <laughs> that's where banishment happens. Nevada. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Hot man. Yeah, it's very hot. It's fair. 130 degrees this what week. What is it outside right now? Uh, it was it rained today. That is true. Which is something that Texans don't realize. Like water can fall from the sky. <laughs> it's it was, possible. Yeah, yeah, it's possible. Anyway, so um, Seneca in this great little book on the shortness of life um, um, had. Well, this is sort of the, the, the seminal phrase. So he says this: "It is not that we have a short time to live, but that we waste a lot of it. Life is long enough and sufficiently generous 
and a sufficiently generous amount has been given to us for the highest achievements, if it were all well invested. But when it is wasted in heedless luxury and spent on no good activity, we are forced at last, by death's final constraint, to realize that it has passed away before we knew it was passing. So it is. We are not given a short life, but we make it short. And we are not ill-supplied, but wasteful of it. Dang, that's good. It is very good. The rest of this essay is very good. And he goes through it, and he talks about um, the various... Judgy. Yeah, a little judgy. (laughs) (laughs) So so are like all the Stoics. Speak for yourself, bro. (laughs) I watched all 12 hours of The Lord of the Rings last night. Thank you very much. Every hour of The Office was a word well spent. Yeah, Three times. Sure. Um, No. So then he goes through it and he has examples of people that he know, that he knew that spent all this time like lobbying the government to be able to throw the the games, like to be the guy oh, that got to do the games. Right. And then while he was doing the games was like, I can't wait till this is done. This is such a match, massive headache right. and stuff like that. And people that were so driven by their passions. And so he goes through and he's got this argument that, um, um, you know, people, he, he, yeah, he sort of points out how people are bad with their time. He'll say that people, um, People, if someone like encroaches on your land, they will fight you tooth and nail to like get you off their land. Mm. But if someone encroaches on your time, they don't care. They don't care right. And that's the one thing that you should be guarding is like your time. Anyway, there's lots of great little wisdom in here. But uh, the big point of his argument is that the life of succumbing to your appetites is a life that is, go- that is going to be a waste of time. At the end, the person who, who um, was sort of... Um, overwhelmed by their appetites is always going to be miserable. Um, um, So he says things like, everyone hustles his life along and is troubled by a longing for the future and weariness of the present. But the man who spends all his time on his own needs, who organizes every day as though though it were his last, neither longs for nor fears the next day. Um, And the big kicker that he gives is, let me see if I can find it here. Um, He says, yes, so then here's the big kicker, and this is the one that we've always come across, we've always sort of chuckled at. Of all people, only those are at leisure. So only people who are at leisure are those who make time for philosophy. Only those are really alive. For they not only keep a good watch over their own lifetimes, but they annex every age to theirs. And this is, he used, he goes on this with this idea by annexing every age. He says that the person who studies philosophy is going back and he's reading all of these other thinkers and he's able to sort of like import their, their, their philosophies and their, he's able to import their points of view into your modern life. And that is a source of comfort and helps you sort of order yourself. Um, I like that phrasing also. I, I almost wish I'd use that in last week's episode of that's what you're trying to do in reading across a topic. You're annexing the a multiple ages on yes. what it has to say on a certain thing. I, yeah. I, I just really like that phrase. So the, the realization that I, that I've come to is that when we, when Seneca says, and all these ancient guys say the happy life is the philosophic life, the, the life of, of a philosopher, we think that what he's talking about is like people that read Kant and like Hegel mm-hmm. and Wittgenstein mm-hmm. and oh, Hegel and like sort of these oh, esoteric books. Really? 
I tried to read Hegel. I literally could. I it did not. It was not English. It was what, not English. Yeah. But who, who is it that uh, says like literally a, a sixth of the sentences are not supposed to make sense? Like people think you're smart. It's one of the philosophers. It's. I'll look it up. But keep on your way. But so then, and maybe this is a, a topic for a different podcast. Yeah. But there is a. There seems to be this really important break in the history of philosophy. Yeah. From it being divorced from practical to theoretical like yes. that that theory and praxis theory and praxis uh, do go together in philosophy but in the in our sort of more modern academic world we've severed those two things yes and it's probably because we are all utilitarians now so <laughs> sure. we're like utilitarian yes. in our practice in our practice and um like arrogant jerkwads in our theory <laughs> sure. that, that that's my that's sort of maybe I need I to develop fair. that idea a little bit further. But um, when Seneca is talking about the life of philosophy um, uh, is the happy life, um, he, I think he's using a different idea on philosophy. And so this is, this is what, uh, when I was reading um, Chesterton, this is the, uh, the, the, um, what I think gets at that idea. What are you looking for there, Berg? Uh, I went looking for some Hegel. Oh, looking for Hegel. Oh, yeah, we were, we're the, all looking for Hegel. The quote is Derrida, who... Oh. Uh, I, I couldn't find the exact quote, but it's uh, uh, the less it make, the less your work makes sense, the mm-hmm. more they will respect you as a, as a philosopher mm-hmm. or thinker. So when I think... Which is miserable. What I think that the ancient guys, when they're talking about the philosopher, the study of wisdom, they are thinking of wisdom in something different than what we're talking about when we're talking about theory. And I think so. All right. Just bracket that thought for a second. Okay. okay now we get to this G.K. Chesterton introduction to Aesop's fables. So um, Aesop's fables, they're delightful. Have you guys mm-hmm. ever read them? Yeah. Have you ever never read Aesop's fables? I don't think so. Oh. I've read the other grouping of fables. What is it? What's it called? Uh, there's a show built after him right now. Let me, let me give you, let me, so they're great. Okay. AJ, you're going to love these things. Let me read you a fable. Here's one. Okay. I'll read you Lay two. These are the famous, the famous ones. Um, this is called The Mice in Council. Once upon a time, all the mice met together in council and discussed the best means of securing themselves against the attacks of the cat. After several suggestions had been debated, a mouse of some standing and experience got up and said, I think I have hit upon a plan which will ensure our safety in the future provided you approve and carry it out. It is that we should fasten a bell around the neck of the enemy, the cat, which will, by its tinkling, warn us of her approach. This proposal was warmly applauded, as it had been already decided to adopt it, when an old mouse got to his feet and said, I agree with you all that the plan before us is an admirable one, but may I ask, who is going to bell the cat? Yeah. Right, and that's yeah. so that's a little fable. Like, who's right. gonna, who's, who, which mouse is gonna go like sacrifice himself for it? Um, and another one: a crow was sitting on the branch of a tree, with a piece of cheese in her beak, when a fox observed her and set his wits to work to discover some way of getting the cheese. So, trees, crows up the tree, eating the cheese. Fox, oh man, I want that cheese. <laughs> Coming and standing under the tree, he looked up and said, "What a noble bird I see above me! Her beauty is without equal. The hue of her plumage exquisite." <laughs> if only her voice is as sweet mm. as her looks are fair, she ought, without doubt, to be queen of the birds. The crow was hugely flattered by <laughs> this. Yeah. And just to show the fox that she could sing, she gave a loud, Kah! <laughs> Down came the cheese, right. of course. And the fox, snatching it up, said, You have a voice, madam, I see, but what you lack 
is wits. <laughs> so, okay, those are the examples of fables. They're always little animals. Do they They don't end with like a moral? Sometimes they do. I so thought, sometimes yeah. they say like, look and see which way the wind blows yeah. before you commit yourself. Or but it's not all of them. Curiosity killed the cat. Right. Or necessity is the mother of invention. Yeah, right. so sometimes they've got these little aphorisms. Okay. Um, so anyway, G.K. Chesterton is writing this little introduction to this. Grimm's fairy tales. That's yeah. what That's I was thinking, thinking of. Okay. Yeah. 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 Uh, similar kind I've of I've read thing. Grimm's. I haven't read all Aesop's. Aesop's are great. Um, but um, they, so Chesterton, uh, the introduction is very interesting. Uh, he, he spends a lot of time talking about the difference between fairy stories and fables, hmm. which was kind of fascinating. Yeah. Um, the main difference being that fables are, there's usually no humans in a fable, and you have these stock characters that hardly ever have any difference. Mm. The fox is always crafty and trying to like screw you. Um, the sheep are always real dumb. Um, uh, the the mice all are all sort of the frogs are always scared of everything. The the mouse realizes it's small, it's clever, but it can also it's also like you know knows it can mm-hmm. get crunched. Um, the lion is is uh, you know nothing can beat a lion, right? Uh, the dogs are the enemies of the fox. Th- those sorts of interactions mm-hmm. don't change. They are givens. Whereas in a, in a fairy tale, everything can be put on its head. It can be topsy-turvy. Right. And it's always like a regular human going through fairyland where everything's different. Mm. Fairy stories and fables are both doing the same thing as far as Chester Sidney is concerned. They are revealing nature. Mm. Um, let me read the quote of, of what he says here. So he says, um, he's talking about Aesop writing these stories. Man in his simpler states always felt that he himself was something too mysterious to be drawn. But the legend he carved under those cruder symbols was everywhere the same, and whether fables began with Aesop or began with Adam, whether they were German and medieval as Reynard the Fox, or as French and Renaissance as La Fontaine, the upshot is everywhere essentially the same. That superiority is always insolent because it is always accidental. That pride goes before a fall and that there is such a thing as being too clever by half. You will not find any other legend but this written upon the rocks by any hand of man. Here's the kicker. There is every type and time of fable, but there is only one moral to the fable because there is only one moral to everything. So this, to me, ends up being what I think both Chesterton and Seneca and Aristotle and Socrates are all saying when they say that the settled happy man is the philosopher. It's not that they are spending their time reading Hegel or Wittgenstein. It's that they are being students of, and I think the way that they would translate the word would be they are students of nature. Hmm. And what I mean by this is the world the way it is. And so I think this is where proverbs, fables, fairy stories, and Socratic dialogues Odin. all converge. Sure. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Od- Odin's wisdom. Yeah. Bad companion on a long journey. Too much alcohol. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Right. So I think so. Um, uh, and Odin would th- those would be fairy stories mm-hmm. in that case, just because they involve people. people. Is mm-hmm. that okay? Mm-hmm. Um. So. Um, the study of the way things are yep. and submitting to that. This is what Seneca's getting at when he's saying um, that you annex everything to your life and you're not trying to wish your time away. Um, 
And what Chesterton, he says, um, in these stories, they never change. The fox is always crafty. But in here, you're learning little, like, folksy, common sense wisdom lessons, right? right? Um, and um, by doing it, um, you realize that there is um, a way the world works. And um, so one po- a podcast that uh, I listen to and I know some of you guys listen to and our listeners would probably really enjoy is Joshua Gibbs' podcast, Proverbial. Mm-hmm. And in it, he's talking about proverbial sayings, uh, wise sayings that a man might live by if he's not so arrogant as to think himself special, Good. which yeah, is the, the intro, line. right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, which, so he has a set intro. We don't have a set intro. Because um, we're not professional enough. Oh, <laughs> we're sorry. not professional oh, okay. enough. Good. Um, but anyway, so like, that's what he's getting at that too. He's trying to get at the one moral of everything. Mm-hmm. The, that, that, that there is sort of, you understand the way things are commonly done fables are doing that um that um the fox you know that there's flatterers and people who are given in by flattery get Mm -hmm. like you know taken advantage of um another fable is like um uh, a a mouse runs over a lion's face and the lion's gonna like squish that mouse and the mouse is like please don't squish me (laughs) Um, I will help you one day. And the lion's like, no, you won't. But whatever. Aren't you cute? And then lets the mouse go. And then one day the lion's caught in a net. Mm-hmm. And the mouse chews the net and sets the lion free. And so the, the moral is even a mouse can help a lion. Mm-hmm. So there's a truth to that. Like even the smallest creature can help the greatest creature. Um, um, Chester didn't even says this when he says like um, – um, the upshot is essentially the same. Superiority is always insolent because it is always accidental. Like, normatively speaking, uh, uh, somebody who thinks themselves superior will, ha- will have a, 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 a disposition of insolence because they just are superior by accident of right. fate. And um, pride goes before a fall. There's such, such a thing as being too clever by half. Um, you know, so fables have, like, you know, a deer escaping... Uh, a dog and it goes into a barn and pretends to be a cow but and then all the cows like treat it like a cow and the deer's like i made it out of here and then like cows get slaughtered yeah and then and <laughs> right. exactly or the, the wolf in sheep's clothing and then uh the the shepherd decides he's gonna have mutton for dinner and kills the wolf right <laughs> sure. like this yeah. too clever by halfness and um i think this is what we're talking about when we're talking about the study of philosophy um um stoic uh, the Stoicism is having a bit of a moment these days with like Ryan Holiday's mm-hmm. um, um, Daily Stoic email that has a lot of followers. Um, and when the Stoics talk about studying nature and basically like submitting to the way that nature works, mm-hmm. pardon me, I think this is what they're getting at. So um, now, so anyway, that that's that's sort of the the idea that I'm positing that. Um, that happy life that Seneca is talking about, where you're not wasting it by like wasting your time away, is the um, study of nature and of common sense and of of and then that's where wisdom comes from. So it, it's not coming from the theory of philosophy, but it's coming from um, sort of observation and then taking the observations of every of everybody else. And building that somehow into the structures of your own way of looking at the world. Does this make sense? Yeah. I think you're onto something. I think this is not far off from so many long time ago. We talked about 
Joseph Pieper and the his book Leisure, the second half of that book is um, the philosophical act mm-hmm. is the name of the essay. This is it's close to what he's getting at too. Of philosophy isn't the discussion or like thinking on high minded things. It's the receptivity to whatever is around you. And so in that sense, it's there is a nature. I know the nature, and I enjoy that nature. Like I'm not trying to fight against what is. It I is, mean, every yeah. every endeavor of philosophy is to, and we talked about this in the break, that the endeavor of philosophy is to see the world as it truly is, mm-hmm. right? And so if you are a good philosopher, you are seeing the world more as it is than anybody else. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that is the good life. And anyone who isn't led into seeing the world as it is must therefore lead a life in darkness, right? Sure. I, I think that's the conclusion I mean, that's, you're driving that's to. The, this is the cave, right? Yes. Like the, the goal is to see things as they really are, which I guess even a modern um, philosopher would say they're doing. We would just disagree with them. But I think this is a, m- a much more noxious belief to the modern ear because the modern person says... Um, there's no there's no such way of seeing things for what they really are because everything is relative to th- that that the observer is also part of the experience and so everything ends up being relative and the and, and so the the person or, who's observing it yeah. is going to bring in their own biases and bring in their own cultural sure. heritage and we've sort of we've um uh, we no longer believe and I'm not talking about like an objective reality of in, even in the moral sense, mm. I'm just talking about like normative reality sure. that there is a way that things normally happen. Yeah. Um, That's it. But, or it's reduced to something that can't, it can't actually be reduced to Nietzsche. Everything is reduced to power. Foucault, everything's reduced to power, but like through the prison system, like everything is prison. Mm-hmm. Um, like it's an attempt to reduce things beyond what they can be reduced to. My question is, can you, and this is what always made me uncomfortable. Can you live the life of someone who is enlightened? Can I be wise without spending all day contemplating philosophy, right? All the philosophers said that is the good life to spend all day contemplating philosophy. That implies that the work itself is what's valuable, not the knowledge itself. Well, this is okay. So Chesterton does talk about this in the intro a little bit. He talks about the fact that Aesop was a slave. Um, And there's other proverbial sayings. Publius Cyrus was a slave. Um, and like, <laughs> the name like Publius. Yeah, poor guy. <laughs> Sucks. Um, but, uh, I, and he was saying that all of these fables are uh, in an observational nature. Yeah. But what he's doing is he's um, he's deriving sort of principles and maxims of human behavior from his observation. So um, in that sense, like the wise person has to be actively engaged in observing the world and, and seeing that these things work themselves out. Um, but then that's so, but then that's a pushback on AJ's assumption of you have to be doing philosophy all day. You're saying engaged in the world. No, I'm saying that um, you, you have, um, you have something you're taking in all of the, 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 the sort of the experiences of life yes. and putting it in the meat grinder and yes. you are producing um, normative statements about nature from all of your various experiences. But I'm saying you have to have those experiences in the first place. Yes, you have to have those experiences. And you also have to have the meat grinder. You yes. can't be an armchair philosopher. But yes. my, yeah. my point is, okay, if I do all the work, mm-hmm. right, I've, I've done this. I've seen the world for what it truly is. I've thought a whole bunch about it. And then I have a son 
and mm-hmm. I try to impart every truth that I know to my son. This is the way that the world works, mm-hmm. right? Be, you can be too clever by half. Pride comes before the fall. Mm-hmm. And I have all of these sayings imparted to my son. Yeah. Does he also, too, have to live the life of contemplative philosophy? Or can he simply rest on no, seeing the world as it truly is? That's my point, is that the, the work is not what's important. What's important is seeing the world as it is. I think he could just take the maxims, but none of us do. Like that our parents tried to save us from learning certain lessons that we then had to go and learn ourselves. Isn't that the question you're asking? Partially, but I'm a Christian in part because my parents were, because that's how I was brought up. There are things I know about the world because that's what my parents taught me. Sure. But there are probably also things that they wish they could have instilled more earlier, but you didn't learn until later in life. That's all I mean. Um, uh, This will not... This is a an audio medium and not a visual one, so I apologize. There's a comic called Saturday Morning Breakfast Cereal, which sometimes is really good, and it shows um, an old person talking to a young per- it's like a grandfather to to a grandchild, giving very simple advice, over overly simplistic advice. The child takes that, but then goes and sees the world. All of it gets complicated and jumbled up. But as they grow older, they come to realize, no, the simple advice is right. I was just distracted by the complications earlier. And then they try and pass it on to their kid. Mm -hmm. And it's the same cycle over and over again of to have lived, you see simplicity on the other side of complexity, but to be young is to see only the complexity. Does that, again, if I could show you the comic, it would make more sense. No, I I get it. Yeah. I I think it even comes down to, yeah, it comes down to that, that folk wisdom again. It's like the answer is simple, but only the humble man who accepts it and submits to it right. ends up being ha- benefiting from it. Yes. Um, and so, um, um, yeah, we, we will learn Aesop's fables either by reading them or by living them. Right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. 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 Same with Proverbs. Right. Yeah. Yes. Um, you, you can, yeah, you other, um, you know, you learn it the easier with the hard way. So would you say if, if we're to, take that as gospel just as an example even if you're a non-christian listener you can still listen to this example Mm -hmm. um if i read the bible and the bible is in part a book of philosophy Mm -hmm. right it tells me if it tells me how the world truly is and i simply trust it and i go with how the world is if it's right i don't have to live the life of contemplation right i just have to read it i just have to be a good reader and a good truster yes actually i think you're right i think that um it isn't the life of contemplation um, um, that if I, th- I think if the, if the person is willing to submit to those, to the, those good authorities that have this, this wisdom to them, that they are going to have that happy life. It's not, it, to, to put it into the, the, the terminology of an earlier podcast, it's not the ratio, it's the intellectus. Yep. Yes. It's not the work, right? If the, if the, uh, and, Again, to reach that was a long time ago. Can you can maybe okay to to update everybody? uh, Who was it that believed this? Was Aristotle? I can't remember. Uh, Anyway, there's there's supposed to be two parts to human reason. One is ratio, which is essentially the work of logic or Mm -hmm. the work of reason, right? That's syllogisms, it's fallacies, it's it's the the grinding away at finding Mm -hmm. the truth. And then there's the intellectus, which is the beholding the the, beholding of the of the actual truth and understanding something it's in its entirety and then letting that truth work upon you. If the angels are what we say they are or what the medievals believe they were, then they are eternal, unchanging, and they know everything there is to know about about the truth of things, right? They don't have to do any ratio. There's no work to do. They're not figuring things out, right? 
Whereas we, silly humans, have to figure things out. Intellectus is, is higher. This and is this good. is this is my point, is that it seems like philosophers think the ratio is the Perfect. thing that's valuable when the intellectus is, is the valuable. The if yes. I can just see the world as it is, I why spend time doing the ratio? Yeah, AJ, you, I think you've cracked it. This is this is the big distinction. I get, hey, all right, Nailed and it. we're done. All right, we're let's done. go. Uh, let's go. Patreon.com slash You've cracked it. So this is so when people think when people read the uh, the philosoph the philosopher is the happy life, they think it's a life spent saying, "What's the answer? What's the answer? What's the answer? What do I want? What do I want? What am I looking for? What is it?" And then delving into theory, but what which can be really tiring, what, which is really sure. tiring. But what they're saying is. Um, the answer is, you know, the one moral to everything. The answer is, and what they called it in, in Sto- you know, sort of the ancient philosophy, is nature. It is the study, uh, uh, nature and wisdom, the, how it works, the, give, the, the way the world works. That's the answer. And then the joy, the happiness that comes is not looking for the answer. It's beholding nature. It's being in tune. It's being right. in tune. And right. then, then the work that you do is by trying to tune your life and your desires to conform to nature. Right. Um, so this is something that comes up in Paradise Lost with, in 10th grade, is that Adam and Eve are happy when they conform to how they were made and how they were, and how they were, they were sort of mm-hmm. uh, where they were placed. Right. They have a home and they have an environment and if they conform to that home and environment, they are happy. To modern, eel, to modern ears, that sounds like, oh my goodness, how can you be happy when you conform to the vision somebody else has for you? Right. <laughs> um, and, uh, and then there's discord when you are out of that. Um, so, yeah, when Seneca says, um, of all people, only those at leisure, only those are at leisure who make time for philosophy, only those who are really alive, he's saying that... Um, taking the opportunity to behold and to sort of uh, um, read, think about, have experiences of, oh, this is the way that nature is, this is the way that the world works. And what makes Aesop's fables so delightful is that they are little perfect nuggets of nature. Like they are little examples of the way, the th- the way things work. Mm-hmm. You read that and... We even sort of smile to ourselves because we know where this is going and the crow doesn't. Right. We know that the fox is trying to flatter the crow. And we know that we've seen flattery happen and, and that, you know, people, when they get flattered, they're, uh, um, they're not going to be thinking clearly. These sort of ulterior motive things. And so, the, you know, um, Aesop's fables are, are full of that kind of stuff. So um, the realization that, yes, that when Chesterton says that there is one moral to the world and the philosopher is the person that is almost like the, the, the acolyte of that one moral. Right. And then Christians have taken that, that a step further and saying that that moral, that nature that you love is something that God has made and, and, and we get to love our home. We get to love our, the, the place that we were made for. Right. I guess um, what am I trying to... A thing that seems hard about this is that the ratio has to be a part of that process. Your statement of we know where the story's going before the crow does is true, but also I fall prey to flattery. Yeah. You know, so there's something to it where I what both, are you, you kidding, Thomas? You always know what's yeah. going on. <laughs> well, actually, I have nothing more to do. Yeah. AJ, yeah you 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 you, you I've this. never yeah. seen you fall <laughs> for flattery. But right? that's my, <laughs> like, I know it, but I don't know it. 
or I know it at one level, but not another. Yes, yes. So the, this you, is fall, the, you, you realizing that you fall prey to flattery is now the work yes. of the philosophic life. To conform myself so to nature. There's even part of me that thinks that when, when the ancients talk about the life of, of philosophy is the good life, um, um, they've stumbled upon the fact that we were built for sanctification. Like that's, and then when they say the philosophic life, um, the spirit, uh, the Holy Spirit is now uh, um, taking up that work. So when Seneca was, was uh, or when the ancient philosophers were doing it without the spirit, it was still satisfying, but it is more, it is perfectly satisfying when the work of the spirit is sanctifying us. Right. So you realizing that you pr- pr- fall prey to flattery is you've used your ratio to know that the where this is, that the crow is setting themselves up, right. and then the intellectus is 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 looking at the story and being like, you know, insofar as the crow, but for the grace of God, go I right? Like <laughs> sure, I yeah. I am that I can be that crow, yeah. and then the work, the internal work, is trying to make yourself more to inoculate yourself against flattery, mm-hmm. and how you do that is is um, is this this soul's work. Sure. Um, so, um, I do still wonder if that's what Aristotle would say is the contemplative act when that's talked about as the good life or is this, I don't know, do they actually, I mean, at some level when they say philosophy, they mean science, they mean like studying, I don't know, are we, but it's a multifaceted thing. Like, so science also is just, is looking at nature the way, the way it is. That way it is, yes. So I'm just, I'm, yeah, I guess I'm wondering, cause some people, AJ, to your point would say, no, literally contemplation is like the good life. Right. But the problem is, is that we've, as modern people, we've taken, we've taken the study of contemplation and we've pulled it apart into subjects. So yeah. some of us are scientists and some of us are philosophers and some of us are, storytellers and right. some of us are musicians or whatever. And no, this is great. Cause that's then why when we hear philosophy is like the good thing to do, it, that didn't mean the same thing 3000 years ago. That's like a totally different, it's literally all of those things is a part of contemplation. Yes. Right? Okay. Yeah. Music is part of contemplation. Yeah. Um, science is part of contemplation. Um, Sitting in in the mead hall and enjoying the story and just letting the story wash over you as part of contemplation. Yeah, I think, I think when we hear contemplation, what we hear is academic work. Yes, and so we think, okay, if contemplation is the deal, that means writing a new philosophy book, reading Hegel, trying to figure that out. Like that is what they mean by the life of philosophy. Right. I'm not sure that's true. Right. The life of a philosopher is not just the work of ferreting out a new philosophy. It's also the work of conforming myself and my life to that philosophy, right? So maybe when we hear contemplation, we only hear one really narrow definition that is only academic, which sounds to me like a drag and a half. Whereas true contemplation is fitting myself to how the world really works. Yes. So the reason it was called a university was because this was the place where we were trying to get to the... We believed that everything was universal. No. We believed that everything fit together. Right. And that nature fit together and that the university was a place wherein we were going to figure out how all of these things fit together. And at some point in, uh, in sort of the, the march of, of, you know, history of human intellect, we started fracturing and breaking those things off. And right. all of those pieces kind of split, just right. like how, like, you have the church and now you've got 
thousand denominations sure. based on on these fractures. Yeah. So that kind of that sort of fracturing ethos um, um, hit um, this belief in the in the whole. Um, and so then when we talk about philosophy now, we're not talking about the same thing that they meant back then. Hmm. Um, Do you think that was lost with the uh, the cos- cosmological worldview of the medievals, or was it lost? Before that or after? Yeah. Um, like when we when we lost the notion that the universe was a union of representations of each other. Oops. I'm sorry there, Michael. Um, um, did, we, did we begin to believe in the fracturedness? I, I also have a hard time believing that only the modern age is fractured. I think if we look through history, we see sects and sectarianism all throughout history, right? They were fighting... They were fighting yeah. schisms in the early church. They were fighting fighting schisms. I mean, every council they had was to fight some sort of schism or, or grand thing, right? right? Some some heresy in the church. And so it's not like we just invented new ideas. Um, I feel like there is a difference between... So if we, if we were to say, answer that sort of poetically, I'll, I'll think of what Eliot says, where he says, you know, back then... Um, every, they believed in different gods, but the modern age believes in no gods. And that's a, that's a change. Um, but there were there were men back there who didn't believe in the gods. Um, but to the point where it was the main cultural driver. Yeah, I, I don't know. G- AJ, give me a defense for wh- why you think that, that, that the ancient world was as fractured as the modern world. Uh, because they spent half their time in warfare? No, no, no. I don't mean political fractures. I mean... Um, um, persecution of the Christian church and then the Christian church being the driver of Roman ideology. No, like that's, I'm getting back to more like a metaphysical idea that the, the, the modern world believes that, um, that everything is, is completely relative to the individual's experience. Whereas, um, um, when, when, um, uh, Guntram and, uh, Alfred f- fought, um, um, there was Guntram actual- believed in the gods of the Danes, and Alfred believed in the god of, of Rome. And, but they both and one of the, and then they believed that the other man was wrong. Right. Whereas the modern man looks at it and says, "Both are right, or both are wrong." But it doesn't matter. It just it, all that matters is the is the is that the, the individual himself believes it. That that to me seems like a bigger difference. Is what I'm getting at. So you're uh, what I am seeing as just a shift in worldview that is fairly common in the world, right? People shift worldviews all the time. You are seeing as qualitatively different because it is moving from a belief in the spiritual to a belief in no spiritual. Yeah, I think so. Or a belief in... So you would say that probably happened around the Enlightenment. Yeah, yes. I think that, yeah, the, that the modern age is characterized by yeah. a lack of belief in the unity of everything. Whereas even if you exist, even if you had a completely different belief system the the flavor of the poetic eddas still has in the background this idea that everything's that everything has a connection to it and we're all part of it yeah that sounds yeah again that's religion versus non-religion right so then secularism as the big challenger to what you're talking about right? yeah and i think and maybe it is materialism and secularism yeah. um that when you when you posit that everything is just sort of matter and energy and then and then therefore power well it's that's a qualitatively different thing than then Odin's on the throne. No, Christ is on the it's, throne. Well, it's a unity, but it's a unity that is only material. And so any any value statements are therefore only opinions and no more. 
Yeah, so that, that is the that's the modern universal. So that's, that's the truth, modern universal. Right? There right. there is a universal, right. and it's universally just material. matter, and that's yeah. all. It's material. I were there no materialists in the ancient world? There were, but I mean, this is the material age. They weren't. They didn't have their age. They were. They were. You know, they were heretics. They're heretics of their yes. age. Yeah. Whereas, whereas the the person who believes in in an objective the, the objective moral. moral is the heretic of the age. All right. So you're saying then the true philosopher is the one who still sees a uniting of all subjects, all things, uh, who I guess rejects that materialism? I'm saying that when the person who is studying, like, um, um, give me a modern philosopher, like uh, who, Derrida, uh-huh. when someone's studying Derrida and is making a career out of studying Derrida and is parsing every little phrase and and is writing this esoteric stuff that is just so full of jargon. Right. And he goes and he reads Aristotle. And he's maybe, maybe he's, at some point he's like, oh, what's this all for? And he reads Aristotle and he says, the philosophic life is the life that you should be living. And he pats himself on the back and says, I'm doing, doing it, man. Doing good. Right. He's, he's not. He's a fool. Right. He's missing the That's point. not what, that, that, that's not, it's the phrase that Seneca is using in this, in this on the shortness of life. He is making an assumption that well, I can tell you that guy has a long life. Yeah, <laughs> the Derrida philosopher. Yeah, woof. Um, oh, like miserable. Yeah, yeah. Like, miserable. Oh, sorry, I was that's like, what I mean. Like, gonna live for a long time. Good that's, for him. That's a oh, long no, no, no. Yeah, yeah. That's time to be yeah. doing that. That Seneca is making uh, uh, an assumption that, um, of a viewpoint of meaning that is yeah. no longer seen anymore. Sure. Um, and so, yeah, that's that's sort of my point. And there has to be some part of it too of the person who's studying. Foucault, Derrida, Nietzsche, pick your person. Like they're not doing the philosophy themselves. And that seems like a qualitative difference between the two also. Seneca's mm-hmm. actually doing his own philosophy. You're advocating people actually think these things through for themselves as opposed to, I mean, that's like apprenticeship under a modern philosopher um, I'm as opposed say- to what yeah. is true. I'm saying that, let's say the first year philosophy student who reads uh, philosophy and then says, this is really interesting. My heart burns within me. I want to know more about this, and gets more esoteric and more esoteric and more esoteric, and get and moves up um, through history, um, um, kind of like your kid in your car in your cartoon story. Is that if he's actually going at the other side of this? If he then picks up Aesop's Fables and reads it, and he's like, "This is actually it." Right. Um, is more right than the person that like makes a career out of being able to apply Derrida to like modern economics or whatever. Sure. Um, that's more the philosophical life is, um, and it gets trashed on, right? Like the like, people be like, Oh, well, you know, sort of folksy wisdom is just for nice for farmers. Whether like but, it's too simple or, um, maybe it's not true because it's so old. Like, um, but it's not simple once you say, Holy crap, I'm like the crow. Hmm. Then all of a sudden, not only is it simple, it's it, it, it like, means something sure. because I want my cheese taken. <laughs> sure. But I guess I'm, I'm saying like the person who is teaching or studying philosophy full time would not want to think that like the crow story does a better job of explaining nature than their um, 500 page book. Than the Hegelian yeah, principle yeah, exactly, yeah. of, of I thesis and antithesis and, yeah, exactly. and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, Which isn't an argument. That's not to say that it's good because it's long, but does that like, I mean, there, there's gotta be some value in those, those, you know, 500 page esoteric books, they might be right. Right. That's, that's the thing. Like we can't, we cannot praise only simplicity as, 
as the the part of the philosophic life that's worth pursuing. I think there are complexities within the philosophic life, but but perhaps we are more prone to think that more complex equals more true. Yes. Mm-hmm. Like a thing is true, whether it is complex or whether it is simple, as long as that's actually what it is. Sure. And I think there are philosophers who make things more complicated, more, well, more complicated than they have to be. But there are some philosophers who point out complicated things. Um, I know that there are a few theories from Karl Barth that I really like, but they're not easy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there, there are ways to think about God's timelessness that are certainly not simple, but still may be true. So I think that simply saying esoteric philosophy is not the way to go is maybe inaccurate. I think to value something not on its complexity or its simplicity, but to value something only on whether it's true or not is the truth of the philosophic life. My question is how you do this when you're busy and have a job and have five kids. Like for those of our listeners out there who are currently driving their kids to school at early, early in the morning and are, have dealt with a lost shoe and a kid that puked in the back seat and are also trying to worry about COVID and masks and all of these extra things. Like how do they spend their time doing the philosophic life? Is it because they're listening to our podcast? Is that, is that like as best as they can do? Cause Oh man, that's a, that's a heavy um, burden for me to bear. Yeah, sure. No, it's also that, you know, your kid's not barfing in the backseat of the van forever. Um, but you only have kids for to, in our modern life for 18 years. And then it's not like you don't have them anymore. But, yeah. like, when you're 40 and have and have uh, lots of kids, um, you so, don't have the time for it. When you're 60 and if you have are blessed to have a long life. So you are saying that by necessity, if I have children, I cannot live the good life? No, I think... No, I'm saying it's just harder to. Yeah, it is, and that's just acknowledging that it's harder. Well, the, I think there's the, probably some parents in the car going, yeah, I got that right. The, the hard right. thing... Well, if you <laughs> want the hard, kids, the hard thing to be hard. like, sure. then you can start saying things like, well, go see, you know, go, go track your hours on Netflix or whatever, right? Like you, you could... could yeah. Sure. I think any... Uh, so this is the question answered in um, The Intellectual Life by... Uh, Sir Leonge, I think is yeah, his yeah. name. Is it? Um, and I think it's enough to make progress toward this goal. There's no end to the project of wisdom anyway, and so to make any pro- to make any progress toward it is sufficient to the day. And so if you're the if you're the parent in that situation and you read one page of whatever, if you read one page of the Nicomachean Ethics a day, like you're doing enough, and that literally takes like five minutes. Mm-hmm. So like it's enough to make small progress toward a big goal. Because you'll never achieve the big goal, even wait, if you wait, have so fifty hours a week. So I can never accomplish true intellectus. Like I can, I can, as a human, I can never accomplish the true tuning of myself to nature. No, I don't think it's possible. Can you tell me why? Um, because there's too much to know. To, there's too much tuning that has to be done to fully align my. So, like, we're talking about like moral elements of knowing nature. There are scientific parts to it too there the field is too big for me to know all things um and I, I almost don't know how to say it more than that am i wrong you think that perfect intellectus is a pot is- no no it's it's not so much that you've been able to like cram it all into your brain um and maybe we even talked about this in the intellectus podcast like we have this idea that what acquiring knowledge means is that you are putting it into you whereas I think of that old medieval uh, sketch where it's the little man crawling on his hands and knees and he bursts his head through the, the tapestry mm-hmm. that is uh, the sky and his head enters into the heavens and he sees the heavenly spheres. That's intellectus. Mm-hmm. So it's almost, it gets to be almost mystical. Right. Um, it gets to be almost where the point, and I think that's, there's something 
about that with an Aesop fable is that when you read this, it is like a little portal into thinking about the world in that in those sort of universal truisms. I think this is also why we love maxims and fables and and it can and it delights like it delights little kids. Mm-hmm. And the reason that it delights them is because it's resonating with their soul. It it is an experience. An intellectus is an experience. Mm-hmm. Just like how you sit and you listen to a beautiful piece of music. Um um, uh, when you, you can have an, I, so Hannenberg, when you said that there are arguments in Bart that you like, those arguments are something that you had an, when you had an experience of them, you read them, you may have kind of understood them. I don't want to put words in your mouth, kind of not understood them, but at some point, if you, it's Bart, I kind of not yeah. understood them. So as you read them, you were like, there is something here. Right. There is a breadcrumb here. Or there is a, I thought I was lost in the woods and now I've seen a paw print of the animal I was looking for. Right? right? Like there's that experience of that kind of joy. It's the same kind of joy that when a little kid finally gets math and they go, oh, I got it. Right. right? Like that little kick, that little dopamine hit is intellectus. But you um, can't because do- you've seen how everything works together. Sure. I think that's why I put the emphasis on following the thing you find interesting because you'll, you can get access to a piece of that, um, intellectus experience, but mm-hmm. you can't have that with everything. You can't mm. pass into full thing. knowledge. So of- that's why maybe I think part of the, the philosophic life is also a life of refining taste sure. because like, I don't like math right. very much. I'm not very good at out. it. I can't do math very quickly in my mind. But um, I've now been listening to a love po- love podcast with like the Weinstein brothers. Uh, especially, is it Eric or or Eric, so the mathematician? Yes. And when he's talking about math and he's talking about the beauty of it, you know, you're, there's this part of me that's like, I fell asleep through calculus in high school. I actually don't even know how calculus differs from geometry, differs from algebra. I mean, I I know the difference between geometry and algebra, but like. If someone said, "Can you define what we're tr- what we're trying to do with calculus?" I actually don't know. Um, and so there's a part of me that's like, "There's an undiscovered country for me." Right. And there's probably if I, and now I feel like you know I'm sort of old enough that I could sit down with a calculus textbook and um, find delight. Um, and so um, the fact that I'm not doing that is because I'm not um, um, not because I. Yeah, so I guess I did disagree with you, Maggie, by saying you should just completely follow your heart because at some point you should sort of sure. follow the path that you know you should love but currently don't. But I'm saying that I, I want people to have the experience of realizing before they then jump to the next one. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the weight of glory argument of like, um, if you only study Latin for a few years, you don't get to like translate the Aeneid, which is where the real fun is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So like, the Nicomachean ethics for me is, was this like opening up of like, Oh, there are like questions that are actually settled. Like I remember that being a, an important moment for me, mm-hmm. which, which then is sufficient. So I try and take a class at community college every semester. And so I took, really? yeah. So I still, took, yeah. And oh, so, um, you're a man of great mystery. My two most recent classes were science classes because I don't know anything about science, Cool, but I didn't start there because everything you said about math, I'm taking a stats class this, uh, this next semester kind of for similar reasons, mm-hmm. but like I needed to know that there's a joy in jumping into something before I could, mm. does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Transfer that and go into so something. So this is I don't why, like. yeah, you, that, that, that's all I mean. You need the guide, you need the teacher, you need the Virgil, sure. you need that kind of thing. 
but that's why, yeah. And that's again, certainly on in the intellectual life will recommend if you don't have a lot of time, why would you spend that on something you don't enjoy? Mm-hmm. Does that mm-hmm. make like, if you're going to only do one page a day, pick a book, pick a classic, pick a good book that you enjoy and chip away at it day by day, but make it one you enjoy so that you're happy when you get to the end of it, instead of like begrudging every day you have to do it. Mm-hmm. Is that, is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. So I think my, my takeaway, the sort of the reason what I wanted to get with this is that when we talk about wisdom, so when we talk about um, it actually ends up being the wise man is the person who is exposed to nature. And I don't mean the outdoors. I mean like the way things are. Right. Or is the person who submits to nature, submits to the way things are, understands the way things are, and then works to fit himself in that. And also kind of in many ways, not only works to fit himself in that for his own benefit, like works to like the wise man can also be the shrewd man or the, the good investor or the good the person who like sees trouble coming and gets away from it. Uh, um, but is also the wise man is the person that when calamity comes that he, there is nothing that he could do about it when fortune comes and it turns against him, he doesn't um, like berate himself or he doesn't lament because there's nothing he could do. It's just the turn of fortune. Right. So even Seneca talks about this. Um, see if I can find it. Uh, maybe I, I didn't really plan on um, saying this. So maybe I won't be able to find it. But he says, um, uh, let's see if I can find it. Oh, yes. Um, uh, the greatest obstacle to living is expectancy, which hangs upon tomorrow and loses today. You are arranging what lies in fortune's control and abandoning what lies in yours. So the anxious man is the person that like worries about things he can't control. Continuously tries to arrange what fortune is going to do. Exactly. Right. And the wise man is the person that understands nature, tries to work the way everything is for his benefit. And then when things go against him, um, and it was completely out of his control, it was just random luck or fortune, he doesn't l- lament that. He just sort of accepts it. Um, and, and, then we, that, that, and then we can get into that whole Boethius conversation. Right. So I kind of like thinking about that, even in terms of some of the things that we talk about in the, in the banter, um, uh, thinking about that even in terms of like um, your own personal finance, your own money, um, 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 seeing the world for what it is, is... Uh, and. So um, fortune as it applies to fortune? Yeah, fortune as it applies to fortune. But seeing the world as, as it is and then um, um, trying to be shrewd with how you then um, push yourself in, the, in the, the way that you see it. You know, you, there's people all the time who are buying stocks with hopes that it's going to go up. Right. And then there's people who, you know, uh, sort of see the tea leaves or see the, see the writing on the wall and, and uh, um, put themselves on that in, in the path for um, – chance and fortune to be in their favor. I don't know. Uh, now we're getting into a whole other topic, but that I'm, tr- I'm trying to like get to a definition of wisdom. And I think it's that you are um, understanding nature. So it seems like uh, this is, this is a question I've had the whole time is, are we saying that true wisdom and sanctification are the same thing? To me, it seems as though they are. Isn't that Aquinas, that truth is the mind conforming itself with reality? Yeah. And that's what... And so if that's that's philosophy, then that is also sanctification if the reality actually does have something to do with God. Hmm. uh, Oh, my my alarm's going off. So if you're on YouTube, you're probably seeing a whole bunch of crazy vibration right now because my phone is vibrating. That's kind of fun. Do you want me to Um, yeah, uh, I want to grab that, Magby. Okay, Um, well, I'll close this down while Magby uh, fixes my phone. Son, wake up, (laughs) AJ. This is... 
Time to wake up. It's first day of high school. Yeah, first day it was all school. dream. Oh no! It was all a dream. Oh, it's going off again. Swipe. You gotta swipe left or right on the bottom. Really? Nothing. Oh, this is fine. Hope you're enjoying this, listener. We can edit this part out. Maybe not. Well, uh, YouTube, your video is gonna go off right here. Maybe it'll go on a little bit. No, oh, maybe maybe I can. Here, hold. I got it. I got it. We'll fix it. Alarm. <laughs> Close. Hey, okay. Hey. There we anyway, go. Anyway, that's all I got. That's cool. That's it. I like it. Do you want to wrap it up? Um, yeah. Sorry, guys. Sorry about the whole phone <laughs> alarm thing. The that's why. Let, that's a great segue right into our Patreon. Um, we help us by cameras. We're professionals. Uh, so we we started a Patreon. If you like what we do, you can chuck a few bucks our way. It helps us pay for the website where we host all these things. It would also we have a few goals for this this whole here podcast. One of them is to get some nice camera equipment so you can actually see our faces and you won't just see my pop filter instead of my face. Sure. Because I happen to be the one directly in front of the camera or on alarms YouTube. Going off on our, or alarms on our going cameras. off on the phone. Yeah. <laughs> or, yeah, our cameras should not have alarms on them is what I'm, I'm hoping to eventually have. So a lot of that money will just go right back into the podcast. Uh, that's that's our goal. So if you want to go check it out, you can go check us out on patreon.com backslash classical stuff. Right? Cool, cool. Classical yep. stuff. You can also email us at theguys at classicalstuff.net. You can check out our website, classicalstuff.net. And we're on Twitter as well, at C-L-S-S-C-A-L stuff. Uh, we would love to interact with you. If you had signed up for our Patreon, you get to send us AMA questions and ideas for the podcast and have access to a bunch of extra little goodies we have in there, including ad-free episodes and all kinds of cool Additional talks stuff. we've given. Additional mm-hmm. talks yep. and, I, and, and maybe sometime in the future. Up. Yeah, we're cooking up more goodies for everybody on our Patreon, so stay tuned for that. Uh, in any case, Patreon or not, we love you guys, and yep. thanks for listening. We will see you next time. Same classical time same classical hour. Bye. That's the same thing. Bye. Bye. Bye.